Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, right after Isaiah, Jeremiah 29. And kids, just a reminder, so here's some words and concepts that we're going to talk about so you can listen and maybe hear some of those um, things like covenant and law and blessing and cursing and obedience. We're going to talk um, about the gospel, about the kingdom, and we're going to talk about a man named Jeremiah who was a prophet to Israel. So you can listen in and hear some of those things. Jeremiah 29, 11, let's read the text and then we'll pray and get right to work. These are the words of God. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, to save you, right? Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray. Our Father and our gracious God, we have gathered as your assembly to give you glory and praise, and we have done so knowing that the only possible way to do any of that is to exalt your Son, who is our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand your word by opening our hearts, our eyes, and our minds. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So I want to begin by emphasizing something central to our convictions here at Cross and Crown, and that being our understanding of the covenant. A covenant, here's the definition, so you can listen carefully for that, kiddos. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties, and accompanying this agreement are ethical considerations, a future-oriented sanctions, right, that are attached to the covenant, and those sanctions can either be positive or negative, depending on obedience to the covenant law. So I'm going to say that again so you can make sure you're tracking with me so you know what I'm saying when I say the word covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties, and accompanying this agreement are ethical considerations, right, things that are right and wrong, ethical things, and with that are also future-oriented sanctions that are attached to the covenant, and those sanctions can either be positive, thus being blessing, or negative, thus being cursing, and all of that depends on obedience to the covenant law, how we treat the covenant law, whether or not we obey and follow it or we disregard it and do our own thing. Now, it is good and right to speak of God's covenants, that is, the multiple covenants that God has made in history, Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, and Jesus. So that's fine. It's good to, to talk about that. The Bible does speak about uh, multiple covenants. But something that we have to keep in mind is that ultimately there is one covenant, the covenant of grace. And what I mean is the multiple covenants that we see in Scripture are all facets of this overarching what we might call a meta-covenant of God. So they, they pile on top of each other, and when we get to Jesus, who issued the new covenant, or better yet, the newer covenant, Jesus simply brings all of the Old Testament history, including all of those other covenants, and he enacts them or ratifies them, and all of it sort of piles together and comes flowing together in his death and his resurrection. 
So it's good that we speak of the covenant law of God, singular. And of course, we must also be diligent students of Scripture and be able to distinguish between the covenants plural and how they fit together. The reason I say this up front is because many Christians don't know how to fit these things together, which leads to two errors that are prominent in our culture, in our society, and the church at large. The two errors of pietism and antinomianism. Pietism is simply this Neoplatonic error of seeing the world through this dualistic lens, and that means this, spiritual things matter more than material things. That's the idea. This is, goes all the way back to, to Plato, the famous Greek philosopher. Um, spiritual, non-material, right, immaterial things are most important. They matter the most. Um, of course, that error creeped its ugly head in the Enlightenment period when you had humanism take over and said that reason is God, basically. But it's the idea that what you think, sort of the spiritual things, your feelings, um, you know, the Epicureans and the Stoics and all these Greek philosophers really focused in on the material things are bad and we need to get out. And, and maybe you've heard it like, you know, you're, um, you're this spiritual thing in your body and you're stuck in this cage called the body, that type of talk. That would be platonic dualism. Now, antinomianism simply means against the law. It's, it's anti-law. Namos in Greek is law, so anti-law. Uh, in other words, you know, so pietists and antinomians, they both reject the law of God as binding. Um, they reject the Old Testament, except for a few obscure moral virtues that are left straggling in, right? You know, be like David and, and conquer your giants. <laughs> so, and thus, when they reject all of that, they don't see any reason, sort of reason to get caught up in this material stuff. So, don't worry about money. Because... And then they misquote what Paul says in First Timothy about the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And they just say, well, money is the root of all evil. That's not what he said. So don't get caught up in these things. Don't get, you know, don't get caught up in, in a house, in a car, in these types of, of things. You know, just be spiritual. This material stuff, however, is the stuff of the covenant. God created matter and thus... Uh, his covenant deals with the periodic table. God invented the periodic table. He didn't invent it so that we could just ignore it and not worry about material things. When God cut the covenant with Abraham, he promised many blessings. He promised land, descendants, and he promised that Abraham would bless the world. Now we get to the New Testament, we know that in Christ, G Jesus says that's all that's fulfilled in him. Physical land. We move from the, the territory in Israel and the Middle East to the entire world. The, the meek inherit the earth, not a plot of land in the Middle East, the entire earth. Physical land, physical seed. God brings his blessings to physical seed through covenant families. And of course, blessing to the world. Now all of that is spiritual stuff. Having children is a spiritual thing. Having property and an inheritance for your children is a spiritual thing. Remember, being spiritual isn't simply the immaterial things, like how you feel and whether or not you are greedy or not. We know that's a sin. We shouldn't be that way. But this stuff, it can't be reduced to your quiet devotional time, and it can't be reduced to the feelings you get when your favorite worship song comes on and, and it hits the chorus, and you're just this mass, you know, euphoria is just 
seeping out of you because it was that cord that got hit. And boy, that's good stuff. (laughs) True spirituality is spirit-filled spirituality. And that has everything to do with everything in the world, including material things. Spirituality can't be reduced to the non-material things. Spirituality has everything to do with material things and spiritual things. So know that up front. Also, we need to understand that within God's covenant came an attachment of blessings and cursings. I had Brother John read Matthew 5 because Jesus is on a mountain and Jesus is giving his covenant blessings. Blessing, blessed are so-and-so for this reason. Blessed are those who are meek, who are, you know, all these things are given by Jesus who is asserting himself as a king because only a king who is divinely given can give blessings and cursings of the law. When God cut this covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, there were five elements to this covenant. And that's why I recommended Ray Sutton's book again, because it's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. You have to read it. Read it several times, frankly. Maybe put it on the docket for once a year. There are five elements to a covenant. Transcendence is the first part. Transcendence. Who is the sovereign authority? The second would be the hierarchy. How does this sovereign authority administer the covenant? How does he administer the terms and conditions? What sort of spheres? We would say uh, that God has given the spheres of the the state, the family, the church, and individual self-government. We would say that that's part of the hierarchy of God's sovereign administration of his covenant law. Third, ethics. What are the rules to this covenant? What are the rules to the law? What are the right, what are the right things that we're supposed to do? And what are the wrong things that we're supposed to avoid? Fourth, so, just to say this again, transcendence, hierarchy, ethics. Fourth would be oaths, um, sometimes called sanctions. What happens if we obey? We have taken an oath to, to, to bind ourselves to this God who has bound himself to us. What, what happens if we obey? And then what happens if we were to disobey? Five, succession. Not secession, which we're in favor of, but succession. What's the future going to look like? Where is this whole plan going? Where, what is the point of the covenant that Abraham received, that David received, and ultimately what's the point that Jesus is making? Now these five, uh, th- these biblical five points serve as the precedent that covers all of the parameters of the covenant. All the boundaries of the covenant are wrapped up in these five things. And one of the ways this covenant works itself out in history is point number four, the oaths, or sometimes called sanctions. This part of the covenant basically doles out that the terms and conditions for obedience and disobedience. So kids, listen carefully for a second, all right? Make sure I have your attention, all right, up here, kiddos. What happens, do you, the Bible says that you're to obey your parents, right? To honor your father and mother. What happens if you don't listen and you do something and then you get hurt, right? You, you disobeyed mom and dad and you got hurt because of it. Well, you should know that your parents are putting these things in place because they want what's best for you and they want to protect you, right? If the oven is hot. You shouldn't touch it. What happens if you touch it? You burn yourself, 
And then you find yourself in a whole other mess, right? So think of God's law like that. God has blessings for us, and, and it's not so much to be a big meanie. It's so that we know what it looks like to live a fruitful life that we're called to live. Now, these terms and conditions, you can read about them in Deuteronomy 28. You can read about them in Leviticus 26. So there are several things that are involved in the blessing portion. And particularly, here are things, I'm just going to tell you, you don't have to turn there, but here are the first few verses of Deuteronomy 28. Here are the blessings of the covenant. Peace, security, and prosperity. That's in verse 3. Large, prosperous families. Verses 4 and 11. Here's another blessing of the covenant. Fertile animals. Verses 4 and 11. Agricultural success. Verses 4 and 11. Who causes it to rain? God. We have yet to figure that out. We still think that we're going to have economic and agricultural success sort of pushing God aside and doing our own thing. And we have yet to figure out how how to do that without God. Number seven. Or excuse me, verse 7 in Deuteronomy 28. A strong military, not a standing army, by the way. The Bible rejects that concept. Success, verse 8, in all of their attempts. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 28. This reputation of um, being worthy of respect of, among all the other nations. Number or The next one, a stable climate, verse 12, and also economic prowess. So not, not, not to insult your intelligence here, yeah, but notice that the blessings attached to the covenant are not things like huge Bible study success or giant megachurch buildings. Bible, Bible studies are great. We, we love Bible studies. That's a good thing. Uh, it, buildings can be useful. Um, I think right now we need to stop all building projects in this nation, and churches need to start funding with other things, Christian education and so on. That's a different thing. Um, so those things are good, but when, I, when we think about spiritual things, very few of us think about the things that are listed in Deuteronomy 28, the very things that God says will be a blessing if we are uh, obeying his covenant. Now, why is that? Why is the church at large not thinking in terms of material prosperity and instead we think of spiritual, ushy-gushy feelings sort of thing? Well, here's why. By, By and large, we do not understand the covenant. By and large, you could go to a church, the average evangelical church, and you could go there for weeks and weeks and weeks and not hear anything about covenant or law. The very foundation of everything in Scripture Much of Christianity has been reduced to private matters. Your personal relationship with Jesus, your personal quiet time, short private devotional life, so on. In fact, many churches make it, they work very hard to ensure that your experience at the worship service is individualized so as to ensure that you'll return next week to cough up the money and be entertained some more, right? And so we'll turn down the lights and we'll make sure that no one will see you. That way you're comfortable and and if you want to raise your hands and worship, by all means, right? That sort of thing. Because of the influence of pietism and antinomianism, we have individualized everything, and we no longer have a covenantal understanding of what it means to be a corporate body of believers. Now, this is a confusion of the one and the many, and while there is a place for individuals in the covenant, 
right? All of you have an individual responsibility to exercise your right, and you have a responsibility to private judgment, reading the Word of God and going from there. But there's also a place for the collective, the community of Christ, the bride of Christ, the assembly of the way, the ecclesia of God, all of us together. Now, the reason I've said all of that as a ginormous introduction is because whenever we approach verses like this one here in Jeremiah 29, we have to make sure that we're keeping all of our categories straight. When it comes to this verse, there are basically two errors. Jeremiah 20:11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans for what? What does he say in the text? Um, plans for welfare or prosperity and not for calamity. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Here are the two main errors of when we read this passage. The first is ignoring it altogether. People say things like, well, that admonition, that was for Israel and only Israel. And this is 2018. And by the way, we are the church. And besides, that's Old Testament. We can't possibly think this has anything to do with us New Testament Christians. That's the first error. Explain it away. Throw it away. That's Old Testament. None of that. We shouldn't bother with it dislocate the whole thing from our time and our place, and then we remove basically 75% of the Bible from having anything to do with us New Testament Christians. And as I have emphasized over and over again, there is no such thing as a New Testament Christian. We're biblical Christians. We believe not only in sola scriptura, we believe in tota scriptura, all of scripture, and frankly, even qualifying the noun Christian with an adjective like biblical would be redundant like born-again Christian. Well, there aren't, you know, that's a different thing. Anyway, so the first error comes in, uh, it comes in from both pietism and antinomianism. And those two heresies are related, of course. Um, people are pietists, sort of the spiritual onlyists, if you will, because they embrace latent antinomianism. We don't think the law applies, so we just, we don't go there. All that we need is sort of the spiritual feel-goodism. And that, that's usually the progression of that, well, regression probably would be the more appropriate term. The second error, so the first is ignoring it altogether. The second error, when it comes to this text, is embracing it without any distinctions whatsoever. This is the error of the prosperity gospel preachers. They open their Bibles, they tell people that God wants them to have that bends, and they tell people that if they have enough faith, they can get it. This sort of heresy is especially egregious because it fails to do the hard work of exegesis, right, understanding the Bible, and it fails to understand the covenant, and it fails to put, within, put all of that within the context of God's law. So both of these errors are essentially guilty of failing to understand the covenant of God. But while they fail to do so in similar ways, they also fail to do so in different ways. Let me, let me explain. The people who ignore a text like this, they fail to see the historical um, circumstance of Israel within the larger context of the covenant themes that are laid out in redemptive history. The, the people who embrace it without distinction, they commit the same error, but their error, they want to reduce the gospel down to a mere transaction with God, who is their, what we might call their cosmic ATM machine. More on that later. So the, the latter group, those who embrace it without distinction, they want the blessing of prosperity, but here's the thing. They want it all apart from the law of God, and then thus they want it apart from the covenant. 
So they too are guilty of antinomianism and pietism. They, they want to reduce the gospel of the kingdom to a mere personal transaction of wealth, health, and, and happiness. As my friend Jerry says in Michigan, the name and claim it and blab it and grab it group. <laughs> So their aim sacrifices the many for the one, and thus they're imbalanced, just like every other anti-biblical error. The, the people who want to ignore the text altogether, they don't even try to understand the problem of the one and many. They've never considered it. They don't even know what it is. And thus, they don't even try. They don't care. These are the John Pipers and the John MacArthur's of the world. As much as I love these men and have learned a ton from these men, they simply they lack a proper covenantal thinking. They, they don't have it, as I referred to earlier. Now, having said all that, let's understand the passage in its historical context. In short, Jeremiah 29 is a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon. We know from Jeremiah 52:28 that 3,023 persons were carried off to Babylon, and this was around 597 B.C. So the passage prior to Jeremiah 29 is, and you can flip there, you, your Bible probably has a heading and you can see it. The passage is about a false prophet, Hananiah, who basically died a quick death because of his apostasy and rebellion. Like many other fa false prophecies, he was, he was reassuring and bringing comfort to the exiles, saying you know, things that you know, God would humble Babylon and, and in a couple of years you'll be back in the land. That's all it's going to be. So his enthusiasm was basically this blatant attempt to cover up his false prophecy. And not much has changed in this arena, has it? You, you, um, I forget the story, but basically the, you know, the, the preacher who has his notes here and he says, you know, this point is no good, just yell louder, that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, okay, so that's going to make it more true if you're more enthusiastic. Well, that's basically what the false prophet Hananiah had done. Jeremiah knows that the only way out of this mess of exile, right, because Babylon had conquered the southern kingdom in 586, they, they had destroyed the temple and scattered people, and they took many Jews back to Babylon. The only way to get out of this mess for Jeremiah, in his perspective, was, was basically to repent and obey the covenant. The two things that had gotten them into this mess in the first place. Now, if you recall, Israel, Israel was the northern kingdom at this point. They had fallen about 150 years before this event when Assyria, Assyria had conquered Damascus, and then and that, that was the capital of Syria, and Assyria came to the northern kingdom, and they conquered um, Samaria in, in 722 B.C., so that was a disaster, and then now you have this looming disaster that Isaiah prophesies and all these other prophets, you know, Babylon is going to come, and they're going to wreak havoc, and they're going to destroy you. So fast forward from Assyria, and Babylon is now the world power. They're, they are in charge of things, and now they're on the scene. Now, so Judah, remember, is in the southern kingdom, and they were led astray by various incompetent kings, and thus Babylon came, Babylon came, intimidated them, destroyed the temple, and took 3,000 of them back. So, so keep that historical context in mind. Jeremiah writes this letter in chapter 29. He writes it in response to the false prophecy of Hananiah and others who basically wanted to circumvent the covenant and the demands of the covenant by giving false assurance. So, in other words... <laughs> 
So we pray about this. We do something about it often. We, um, there's different ways of abolition that we like to participate in, and we continue to keep that a focus in various ways. What we can't do is sort of just say, and this is what normally passes, things are bad. Yes, we kill 3,500-ish a day, you know, children in the womb, and it's bad, and we have injustice, and taxation is through the roof. Things are bad. This is the false assurance that goes in churches right here. Ready? Jesus is coming back soon. So that's the type of thing that Jeremiah was fighting against, to, to translate it to today. This sort of, yes, things are bad, but don't, don't worry. You know, God's going to come back and handle it. And, and so that's our hope. <laughs> so Jeremiah has nothing, none of that. He, he, no circumventing the covenant. We are not going to disobey our way out of this disobedience problem. You have to obey your way out of it. And the covenant law is central to it. Now, this letter is, is quite interesting. He writes to the elders, the priests, and the prophets, all of whom Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 1, we learn, had taken into captivity. Um, this is after King Jeconiah uh, Jeconi fled Jerusalem. That's in verse, verse 2. The letter was sent by Elisa and... and um, Gamariah, verse 3, verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice that God sent them there. God was the one that did it. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar, who was not lacking in ego, he believed that he was the one who had conquered Judah. He, he is the one who thinks that he took prisoners, but ultimately it was God in his predestination who had orchestrated the whole thing. Now, King Neb, we'll call him that, Nebi, maybe, I don't know. King Nebi would learn a lot about God in the coming years, especially from Daniel, who was raised up by God to bring witness to Yahweh. If you remember, it was Nebuchadnezzar who was forced to basically eat grass like an ox. So be careful if you find yourself in a haughty position. You may be out chewing grass in the lawn. At any rate, let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. We're going to read 5 through 14. This is um, Jeremiah saying what God is saying. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Notice the phrase multiply. Where do we learn about multiplication? All the way back in Genesis, right? The dominion mandate. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. 
You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now what is interesting about this passage, this letter, is the fact that God tells them to sit tight, but that's not to say that you should not be doing anything. Because that's what we do in evangelicalism today. Things are bad, just hang tight, right? Be still and know that I am God. I almost did that verse for this series. Because this insufferable, pietistic call to non-action is what it is. So don't do anything. Just wait. Should we wait on God? Well, yes, to some degree. But we are not to just sit still and do nothing. And neither were the, the Jews in exile. Um, the call of the covenant of God is very simple. And it harkens all the way back to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. In every sense of the word, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply your children. Multiply your, your business plans. Right? Go for it. This is the covenant. You, you, we are multiplying people. That's, our, that's what we do. We disciple nations and other nations and then on to the next nation. And then the nation that we thought we discipled and has gone off the rails, well, we go back and do that too. And that's thousands of years of Christian civilization right there. That's what we're supposed to do. So build stuff. Farm the land. Make tons of babies. Have tons of weddings. And while, while you are away, God says, obey the covenant in exile so that you will be ready for another exodus event. Remember that Israel, while they were slaves in Egypt, they were very prosperous. Despite the circumstances, they were very prosperous. Um, the church today needs to quit hating children. Oh, you have that many kids. That must be a handful. Yes, it's a handful, but man, is it a blessing, right? I mean, that, we have a culture that does not care to... Re we have a culture of death. Therefore, it's a culture of non-multiplicity. It, it cannot multiply. So Christians, if you want to wake up and take the land, get with it, right? That's what we should be doing. So while they were slaves in Egypt, the Jews, the Israelites, they were very prosperous. And the same principle is at, a play, is at play here. The reason that they were then hauled off to Babylon as exiles is because they had transgressed the covenant. So now that their lives were uprooted, their entire world was dislocated, they now have ample reason to go back to God and return to His covenant. You would think that in the past 40 years, as many children as we slaughtered in the womb, the church would wake up. It would not. It's not waking up. In fact, any prophets who are sent to their doors are quickly rejected. Their lives were uprooted, and now is the time to return to the covenant. That's what the church needs now. The prescription for sin and exile is covenant faithfulness. This has always been the case. It has always been the case from Genesis to Revelation. The prescription for sin and faithlessness, right, is covenant faithfulness. So, so Jeremiah writes a letter, and he tells them that this exile is going to last 70 years, which isn't meant to be taken literally, by the way, and that their job is to be faithful to the covenant. They weren't faithful to the covenant, which is why they were in the predicament they were in, and the only way out of this said predicament is by obeying God. This is a fantastic principle here. No one gets out of the dilemma of sin by piling on more disobedience. 
You're not, we're not going to fix this garbage that's happening in our culture by just refusing to do the things God has called us to do. Be fathers, be mothers, have children, have children, children have children, right? And, and build businesses, give your kids an inheritance, figure this stuff out, be faithful to the covenant. That's how we get out of the mess. Now, in this passage, there are a lot of themes and things at play, things that connect to the larger story of redemptive history. Now, keep in mind that context, the historical context we just covered. The false prophets, they're circumventing God's plan by basically shortcutting the process of repentance. Okay, they're telling their kinsmen, you know, don't fret. It's just going to be a little trip to Babylon. You'll be back in no time by dinner. So, you know, think of it as just a quick vacation. Jeremiah says, no, no, the disobedience was bad, okay? We're talking 70 years. It's going to be a while. 70 years. So if you're an infant and you're in exile, your whole life is in exile. Now, the background of all this was Israel and Egypt. Remember, the 400 years were between Jacob's entry into Egypt and then the rising of Moses. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. This is not a five-minute vacation. Now, obviously, 70 years is shorter than 400 years, but 70 years is a lot longer than two years, which is what the false prophets were saying. So Jeremiah is essentially saying this. Repentance is only good to the degree that it goes all the way down into a soul of man. Kids, when, when you do something wrong and your parents are trying to work with you, don't think that you can shortcut the process by just saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that is a sure sign that you're not sorry because you are still angry and you have some things to sort through. <laughs> But repentance, again, is only good as long as it goes all the way down to the soul of a man. There is no fast-track course on repentance. You don't get to repent as fast as it took to get you headlong into sin. That is not how the process works. Sanctification is God's process of rooting out all vestiges of inconsistency in our lives. Everything that doesn't align with the covenant, God's in the process of rooting it all out, making us consistent. And that, listen, that takes more than five minutes. Character takes a lifetime to develop. And so they were not to blow off the severity of their exile. But on the other hand, they weren't to despair either. They were to get to work. They were to seek the welfare of the city. To the degree that they sought peace and prosperity in Babylon is, is the degree that they would experience peace and prosperity in exile. A peaceful and prosperous Babylon meant that Israel would be peaceful in process. See, Babylon is like another garden, and Israel is like their Adam, their father Adam. The dominion mandate was never rescinded. It shows up in all the places, everywhere. And this, this dominion mandate is uniquely tied to the covenant law. Israel was in the land, the garden land of Canaan. But like Adam, they sinned, and they were sent to the east. They will return, but only to the degree that they take seriously their obedience to God. Now, I'm hoping that you now see the themes and how they might apply today. Which means instead of going to a passage like this, all right, I'm, I'm arguing, instead of embracing it without distinctions, and instead of ignoring it altogether, I think we need to understand the context and see how the principles apply, because they do apply today. Jeremiah 29, 11 does apply to today. 
Yeah, the historical context is different, right? It's about a historical people in a historical context during a very historical period of time, right? But the covenant people of God, the church, is us. Like, these are our brothers and sisters that were sent into exile. These are our brothers and sisters in Abraham. So their story is our story, too. And these, these are our people. See, coven, covenant membership was never about generation and then thus bloodline. Covenant membership is regeneration and the blood of Christ. So in the new heavens and new earth, right, we will know Jeremiah, the culmination of all things. We'll know Jeremiah. And we'll be able to sit down with him, have some Chick-fil-A, maybe, and we'll be able to meet people and talk to people that were people who were in exile in Babylon. Fascinating thought, right? They are our people. These are, these are my peeps, right? <laughs> they are our people. Which means that, sure, we can, we can grant that the historical context is unique to them, and thus directly, in a way, some of that doesn't apply, at least historically. Because we live in Warrington, Virginia, not Babylon. So there's obvious differences. But the principles, the principles absolutely apply. So we want to embrace it, but with some distinctions. And what are those distinctions? Well, God's covenant with his people spans all of human history. The covenant that Jesus renewed and thus ratified by his blood is part of that history. And this means that the Old Testament does apply to us and that only when the New Testament revokes or abrogates something from the Old do we then ignore it. And what we do not see anywhere in the New Testament is the abrogation of the law of God. Right? We see the ceremonies, the shadows, we see those things abolished in Christ but not the law of God, and thus we don't, we, do, <laughs> we don't see anywhere the, the, the sanctions of the covenant, both positive and negative, abolished either. They're not done away with. In fact, as I argued earlier, Jesus steps up to the Sermon on the Mount, and what does he do? He gives blessings first, right off the bat. Now, just to be even more clear with you, the covenant pattern remains in the New Testament. There are blessings and cursings that we can read in the old and we can apply them in the new. Thus, the principles that Jeremiah set forth to the people in exile in Babylon, those things carry on to the new covenant era as well. Now, at this point, you might object, because I need to do some explaining here. You're... You might object and say something like this. Well, you're saying that this does apply in some sense... So does that mean that the Creflo Dollars and the Joel Osteens in the world, that they're right after all, that we should sort of get on the prosperity train here? All this talk of welfare and prosperity and favor and so on, this seems like the prosperity gospel people are actually right. Here's what I would say. Not so fast, Sparky. <laughs> the Bible does not teach a prosperity gospel not, not the one you see on TBN. The Bible does, however, teach covenantal prosperity. Amen. So there is a vast difference, and it's important to know what those differences are. So to start, from cover to cover, from table of contents to maps, the Bible teaches that nations and cultures and kings, all of them rise and fall, and all of that is based on their conformity to God and his law word. Nations rise and they fall 
based on their conformity to God's word. You think of, uh, I think it's in Daniel 2. You know, I, I set up kings and I take them down. Like, that's what God does. He, he puts imbeciles in, into the presidency. Uh, just saying that generally, not talking about any one particular current one. Uh, he puts incompetent people in places. He takes them out of them too. He puts competent people in places, and then he takes them out as well. That's God's prerogative. Now, all of that is simply due to the fact that God, God predestines all things, and part of his predestination is his covenant law. So when we line up with God, things go well. Kids, when you line up with your parents, when they're lining up with God, things just go well for you. You don't burn your hand on the oven. You don't mess things up. Because here's the thing, kids, your parents and I'm putting myself in this category, we've made the mistakes. <laughs> we know what doesn't work. And so when we're teaching you God's word and how to live and mature in God's world, th this isn't some hoity-toity thing. We've messed it up, and we know how to not mess it up. So when we obey God, things go well. When we disobey and we don't line up with God, things go bad. And this is simply the nature of the covenant. Why is America in this disheveled mess Oh, well, because of this, this, that law, and this law. No, 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 no. The root problem here, why is it in the mess? People of God, the people of God have forsaken the covenant law. That's the answer. So the prosperity gospel doesn't have this grid. This, this false gospel reduces the gospel of the kingdom to sort of this economic transaction, right? You have your faith, God gives you money. You have your faith, God gives you that house and that car, you, as long as you have enough faith. Now this is an individualized reduction in a reducing of the gospel message. So it wants the prosperity of the covenant, but it wants it without the covenant and then it without the law. So it wants to treat God like this cosmic vending machine, sort of the crane you know, game, right? That, but all of that is pietistic, and it is antinomian. And we must be careful. <laughs> what we must be careful of is remembering that we don't combat the prosperity gospel with more pietism and more antinomianism. It doesn't work that way. And the gospel is very much for individuals, and it brings an individual into the covenant, demands obedience to the covenant, and it brings you into relationship with other individuals together. So there's this inherent dialectical problem in the prosperity gospel. A dialectic is simply these sort of two concepts that are at odds. And any, any non-biblical thought struggles with that. The one, the many. Science versus you know, God's word. We sort of categorize these into two different things. But in the prosperity gospel, there's this problem. And that's because it does not account for faith for all of life and faith in the covenant community. Covenant prosperity, the type of stuff that Jeremiah is commending to the church in Babylon, is completely in line with the law of God, and it depends completely on it. So this isn't this sort of one-for-one trade-off, divorced from the dominion covenant. It's not, a, it's not a quid pro quo type thing where, you know, this measure of faith... And I've always wondered, how do you measure faith? Is it in, do, are we on the metric system? Or, right, if you have enough faith, then this is the type of BMW will get you. And it wasn't that much faith, so it's not like the high-end Beamers, right? It's just the low-end. You know, you still get power windows, but it's not, you know, it's not great. 
It's not, it's not this for that, quid pro quo. It's not you give, you input your amount of faith, and that equals the Mercedes Benz. That's not at all how the covenant works. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God, not the gospel of your income stream. And what we must do is see that Jeremiah is speaking to a covenant people who have disobeyed. And they have been dislocated from the land, exiled from the land. And the only way out, the only way to get another exodus, to get back to the covenant, is, is to get with Jesus Christ, stepping in this... <laughs> think about Daniel in the lion's den, but also think about this, too. The only exodus they can get, the only way out of Babylon is with Jesus Christ stepping, stepping into the fiery furnace. That's it. By the lion's mouths being closed. By God blessing his obedient people. That's, that's it. That's how Babylon is brought low. God humbles the king. The people are faithful. They build houses. They have kids. They do life. They pursue the dominion covenant. And then God brings them out. But we also need to keep something else in mind. We should not ecclesiasticize the covenant. Here's what I mean. The kingdom of God is larger than the church. It's bigger than the church. Too many two-kingdom people reduce the kingdom down only to the activities of the church, the spiritualness of the church. These are covenant people. These are church members in Babylon, our brothers and sisters, right? They are serving Yahweh, the king of everything. Their prosperity was not in terms of local church membership or whether or not the elders checked off their church covenant, you know, thing, their attendance. That's not what their prosperity hinged upon. And why? Because it's not an ecclesiastical covenant. It's a kingdom covenant. The kingdom cannot be reduced to the church. It is larger than the church. And that's why a passage like this can apply to us. See, the thing is, regarding this text, is it not the gospel promise that Jesus gave to his church, covenant blessing, the truth that he will never leave us or forsake us? Did he not give us a future and a hope with nations that are discipled? A future planet discipled by in Christ, nations discipled and taught to obey him. Isn't Jesus Savior of the world? Doesn't his Sermon on the Mount teach about the blessings that we get in the kingdom when we serve him? Is that not welfare? Does God not intend for his covenant people to... Does he intend for us to be eating the crumbs of the, the world drops on the floor? Or does he intend for us to sit at the table and feast with him? Is this covenant not for the blessing of the world? Isn't it true that Jesus gave us the ultimate exile, right? Freed us from the ultimate exile, death to resurrection in our lives. Isn't it safe to say that the Lord plans for his glory to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea? The plans that God has are laid out in his covenant. His plans are for prosperity and for blessing. But it's also for cursing for those who would reject him. And when the church gets pushed to the side, ousted from the public square, we have to ask the question, are we being faithful to the covenant? Draw your own conclusion there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to see your name made great here in this nation. We want it... We, we want our town and our country, our counties and our states in this nation to honor you. And not so we can boast in ourselves, 
but so that we can fall to our knees in adoration of your glory. And we know that your name is blasphemed and that we are a haughty people. We need repentance and we know that it only comes from your hand. So please do grant it. Grant it to your people, your church, and grant it to this nation. Our calling is to disciple nations, and we can't do it unless your spirit is with us. So help us, Father. Help us to be covenantally faithful, to use our blessings that we've given for the kingdom and not for our petty little kingdoms that we like to construct. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.